right now we're having um, a disclosure plan kind of like starting to unfold with UFOs being suddenly talked about ad nauseum in the mainstream media. You know, at the moment it's a threat, but it soon can easily morph into something else. Do you feel, uh, how do you feel about that? I mean, is, is there a bigger disclosure plan happening and that you're part of this? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's the whole point of, of many of us, you know, and I, when I say many, I mean, we're talking millions and millions of different, you know, what we call star seeds coming in. It's And once this process of evolution at the human race has been completed, many of us will go to another planet where their third density going into fourth and they're, you know, it's just the process because what it is, once your race has moved on past like the fourth density or so into the fifth, especially, then you've come together enough that you can go and assist other races in their ascension. And so that's just the process. It's very normal, but it's important that even if you're uh, coming in as another race that you have to incarnate through that whatever race in this case is human you have to incarnate through the humans to have the human experience to maintain the free will ab uh, abrogation uh, so that you don't land a giant spacecraft you know into a society that can't handle it you know that'll start shooting at you or that will start shooting at one another you know because out of fear you know and and right now we're not 100 out of that you know, um, so like you say, there will be a like a layout. The plan for Earth and for humans is for it to become more common to see UFOs so that it will be no big deal. You know, it might be cool to watch, but you're like, OK, yeah, it's a UFO. I get it now. You know, then the next step will be with them communicating with people more directly and then, you know, eventually someday landing on on the Earth. And it truly depends on humans and how how we approach the situation if we can come together as a human race and say okay you know let's accept this this is the fact let's not freak out you know let's not start shooting at things and start going crazy if we can get to that point they'll land as soon as we're there but we're just not there yet you're listening to exopolitics today with dr michael sala your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. It's my great pleasure to welcome back to ExoPolitics today, Chris O'Connor. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Michael. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me back. And hello, everybody. Well, we have done one interview before in um, late September, early October that it came out where we talked about your memories of being part of a UN-run secret space program and that you, you served three 20 and back. So what made your case kind of very unusual for me was that you actually began by being age progressed from the age of two to at the age 25, when you began your first 20 back. So you want to just maybe recap for those that don't remember or who haven't heard you before, why it was that at two years old that you were identified as someone of value to this secret space program that was uh, in existence at that time in the early 1970s. Right. Um, well, essentially, uh, 
prior to incarnating into this, you know, this body you know, in 1968 is when uh, when I was born. Uh, prior to that, we actually, my soul group, my soul family, and myself uh, had a contract with uh, the United States uh, that I would incarnate and that, at, at, you know, I don't know if I remember they said age of two or whatever, but at at two years old, that they would take me age, advance me through their technology. Um, and then I would begin, I'd work 20 years for United States uh, doing various things, a lot of which, you know, uh, are unrelated to uh, all of the uh, emissary type of stuff I did for the UN. Uh, but then after 20 years, uh, I would begin working um, with uh, a space-based United Nations you know, it has connection to the United Nations here on Earth, but uh, it's not the same exact uh, organization. It's like an offshoot. Um, so, yeah, so it was pre-planned. That's how they knew, you know, to find me. <laughs> right. So with that first uh, pointing back program, your age progressed from age two, and this took place in 1970. Yes. And so suddenly you're in a 25-year-old body, but you have your memories, not of a two-year-old, but of your prior life or lives. And so you serve for 20 years in a U.S. space program. Now, was that the Solar Warden program, the, the, the beginning of that? I mean, what do you recall of that particular program? Well, interestingly, I, I'm really bad with names. Um, you know, uh, so I, I have, I'm a very visual person. I see uh, um, everything visually. And so I interpret things that way. And um, so I don't remember exactly which uh, organization it was at first. Um, I mean, I, I feel like I feel like it was Solar Warden, but I can't say for certain because I just don't have that exact memory. Um, but yeah, so it, uh, it, it was definitely the United States, though. <laughs> Yeah. Do you remember anything about the uniforms that the personnel wore and what kind of ships they were flying on? Uh, what I do remember is we had, I was some a good amount of time on Earth as well. Um, and actually, the uniforms were just like like a navy blue, very simple uniforms, uh, almost um, kind of security guard sort of a look. Um, they were very simple. I do remember one patch that was... Um, uh, of course, no, I'm sorry, that was later on for United Nations, that patch that I, I do remember that one, but I don't remember any uh, insignias or logos. Um, I don't remember anybody wearing one. So that's very interesting. So, of course, people, when they think of the Navy, they think of the the, the dress whites or the, the white uh, uniforms they wear, but the, but the Navy uh, also have uh, kind of blue camouflage uniforms, which presumably kind of uh, make it harder to distinguish someone uh, in the ocean or in the water in one of those. So, so, and and that's associated with kind of like combat duty, security duty. So mm -hmm. you you were involved in security duties for that first twenty years. I do have definitely have memories of that working with, uh, you know, with some of the children that they were actually training, um, and I know that was on Earth out in the deserts of California. And I do remember some gray uniforms that were very just plain, like medium, darkish gray. Mm -hmm. Now, at, at that point, I mean, we're talking that first 20 years, I mean, the, you know, 1970, the beginning of this kind of uh, 
secret space programs in the US. So you're an advanced ET soul that's incarnated in human as in a human body. Your age progressed. You're now part of this secret space program. You're doing security work. So was that because you had the kind of DNA and the consciousness where you could interface or interact with kind of like advanced ET technologies or artifacts in a way that made it possible for those things to be investigated, researched? Was, was, was that kind of like, does that ring a bell for what the sort of things you were doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I would work on a number of things. Part of it was um, memory and soul transfer and uh, consciousness, you know, transfer from a body to a clone or, you know, saving somebody or removing memory. You know, so I was working with that. I, I remember doing some security detail work. Um, and, uh, you know, I did a number of things, most of which are pretty well blocked off, but, uh, but I definitely have a memory of those, uh, circumstances working in, um, very small white rooms that were like medical type of rooms, uh, that would, uh, work with, uh, like extracting memory from someone, uh, or if there's an emergency, um, uh, say if, say if a soldier was injured and their body was dying, We'd transfer the consciousness in and the memories, you know, from their dying body to generally a clone. Now, I know they had technology to repair bodies, but this is only if they couldn't repair it. It was pretty too far gone. You well, know? And even sometimes after they died, we could transfer it if we have a couple of hours. Well, I find that to be an interesting parallel with uh, my army uh, inside of JP, who you met at the uh, hmm. at the. Uh, what was it? The spiritual, galactic spiritual yeah. informers connection conference. You you met yes. him, and and he is an extraterrestrial contactee, and and he when he began serving with the army, so his current his active duty, they put him on security details. So when he does these off world missions, he's on security details, which uh, you know at first it sounds strange. Well, why would you use an ET contactee who presumably has higher consciousness and is able to communicate with ETs, why would you use them on security details? But it sounds like similar considerations that people like you, like him, have the genetics, the mm -hmm. DNA, so that you could go into places or interact with certain things and, and, and make it a safe environment. Well, absolutely. You know, and a lot of that technology, you know, because when you're, uh, when you incarnate into a physical form here in third density, you bring a DNA a trace of that with you of your soul, you know, what your native race. Um, and so it's that DNA that a lot of this technology that um, that uh, the United States trades for um, is built by other races. So most people, most, you know, humans don't actually have that, you know, DNA trace that can operate either sometimes it ships, sometimes it's just technology. And so that's why they make deals you know, with these races um, for certain people, you know, that they, that they know will be able to operate certain things and go certain places, like you say. Mm, that's, that's absolutely correct. That uh, I, I know that's what JP has told me, that the Nordics that he has been in touch with, that been interacting with him, made agreements with the US military. And part of those agreements were that JP would be looked after and of course, then he enlisted, and um, and he's been continuing to release information. And I think this is 
part of the agreements uh, between the Nordics and the military. So that makes absolute sense why they would identify a two-year-old as having the genetics and the consciousness to be useful in a secret space program. And, and so they go through the whole age progression and age regression thing. So that mm. does make sense. Even yeah. though it's a, it's a bit of a stretch for a lot of people. Yeah. I think a, a two-year-old? Yeah. Come on, seriously, Sala? Yeah. yeah, exactly. How can a two-year-old have the free will to make this choice? Well, yeah. the, the fact is it was made prior to incarnation. Yeah, and, and, and the critical thing is that that two-year-old has the genetics and the, the mm -hmm. consciousness that would be of value to a secret space program. And they have the technology to age progress and age reverse uh, any at, at that time. So definitely, I think it's, I mean, that makes it very plausible what you were, that what you said. Okay, so for your the first 20 years from 1970 to, to 1990, you're in this uh, uh, US military secret space program, uh, mm -hmm. you know, presumably the Navy, Solar Warden, but you're not sure of that. Right. Now, towards the end of the 1980s was a critical time because you you had uh, the, the the kind of end of the Cold War, the, the crash of the Berlin Wall, and um, you, you have these very strange statements by President Ronald Reagan at the United Nations and elsewhere saying that uh, there was a great need for the for the U.S. and the Soviet Union to collaborate in facing an extraterrestrial threat, and there's a very famous clip where he's standing before the United Nations General Assembly. I think it was September 1987, and he, and he literally says that you know, wouldn't it be better if the Earth's nations learned to cooperate in dealing with an extraterrestrial threat? And isn't such a threat in front of us right now? And of course, people thought, well, he's just, you know, just being a lunatic or something. But, but in fact, at that very time, a United Nations secret space program was being formed. And, and I did write about this in, um, in several of my books, that actually that was what led to the creation of a United Nations secret space program. And, and you come into this because you actually at the end of your first 20 and back in 1990 then you made a kind of lateral move from the from the u.s military run space program into this newly formed united nations space program so you want to kind of pick up from there and tell us what you know about that formative period yeah um you're exactly right after that first 20 years the, the agreement was uh for me to incarnate through and and be used with the first United States, uh, whether it's the Air Force or the Navy or both, because I remember I, I remember feeling like there were both at times, depending on where we would travel. But um, the, the agreement was for the first 20 years, they would get my service. And then they would supply uh, like transportation and all these other things for me. Um, but I will actually be moved over to United Nations representing Earth rather than it's just the United States. So that was kind of the deal that, that was struck prior, you know, to me incarnating was that um, that's how we would work it. And so they would actually um, provide transportation out to uh, Saturn, to Mimas, you know, and during that time, you know, there are these races that were coming in, you know, like uh, you mentioned in that time of the end of the Cold War, they were working with a number of nations, anyone that had real military power might or the ability to leave the planet at some level. 
because um, uh, they also knew that you know that we had to learn to get along before we can actually be a fully off-planet uh, race as far as a whole human race. Um, and so uh, they began working uh, to put the um, the United Nations group together. Um, it was formed through the United Nations because that was the best organization at the time uh, for these outside uh, sources to come in and work with. Though they commuted individually, like certain races would uh, communicate with the Russians, some with the Chinese and others with the United States and the UK and France and these other nations. Um, but they would all come together um, through the United Nations because that was what we'd already established here on Earth. And so they honored that. But they did create an, a branch of the Earth-based United Nations that's more off-planet. Well, that's a very interesting kind of like uh, perspective because one of the things that has always puzzled scholars is, uh, you know, why the Cold War ended the way it did? Why did the Soviet Union kind of like let go of its empire? You know, it let go of the Warsaw Pact countries and it allowed itself to actually disintegrate from uh, a, a kind of like a, a unitary government with 15 provinces into 15 different nations. And, and that ended the Soviet Union and led to the Russian Federation being a very weak shadow of the former Soviet Union. So why did that happen? And one of the explanations, of course, is that uh, the Soviet Union knew that they couldn't keep up with the advances in kind of like um, Star Wars and uh, advanced space weapons. They couldn't keep up with it. And so a deal was struck whereby the United, the United States would like begin collaborating with uh, the Soviet Union in terms of space activities and that a United Nations space program would be created where all of the nations would collaborate so that the technology would be shared. And so this was one of the conditions for the end of the Cold War. And, and certainly it, it explains why the Cold War ended the way it did without there being, you know, shots fired between the Warsaw Pact and NATO. It was all done peacefully. And, and the only fighting that took place was in Romania because of the civil war there between the army and the, and the secret police. But um, it was all done peacefully. And, and that, to me, suggests that some behind the scenes there was some deal that was struck. And, and I think that this creation of a United Nations secret space program was, was probably one of the main reasons why the Cold War ended. I would agree with that entirely because, you know, those talks began mid-1960s. Um, you know, these races had already begun contacting, you know, each of the nations. And it took a, quite a while, you know, for them to really come together because uh, we had to get over a lot of stuff. You know, that's just, our, that's been our human process is, is getting over those idiosyncrasies that we hold on to. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, you formally begin working in the United Nations Secret Space Program in, in um, 1990. That's your first, and you sign a 20-year contract. And uh, then you go, you're relocated to the Saturn moon Mimas. So, so why would uh, a United Nations Space Program that involves the leading nations on earth why would they establish a headquarters on the saturnian moon minus 
Oh, Mimas, well, how do you pronounce it? Mimas, yes. Um, well, they, they established several uh, different locations uh, because there are a, at least three that I can recall different um, confederations or federations in just our solar system alone. Um, they're all connected, but they're just different locations. And so you have to have a representation at each of those. So they had one in Jupiter, Saturn, and Neptune. Um, and I think they had like a small, you know, a couple of small ones that are just outposts uh, and like in, in a couple of small planetoids and asteroids. But yeah, they just needed, they needed to have representation where they're going because not all because um, some locations uh, are higher densities that uh, not all entities can interact with. So they have to have a location for that. And there's technology to help adjust, but you can't spend a lot of time outside of your, your density. So you have to have technology. So they just try to make it as easy as possible, which is why they kind of split confederations and federations up a bit, uh, just logistically, you know, to um, allow as many different races to be a part of it as possible. Well, we know on Earth that the United Nations has headquarters in Geneva and New York City. So what you're saying is that the United United Nations Secret Space Program has, I guess, headquarters on on those three areas, like the yeah. Mimas on, on Saturn, uh, Jupiter, what, uh, you didn't say where on Jupiter, in the clouds? Yeah, I don't, I wasn't connected with them. I was only Mimas, so all my memories are primarily Mimas. But I know they were in Jupiter and uh, Neptune as well. Okay, all right. So so tell us then, you know, what do you recall about that um, United Nations Secret Space Program headquarters that you operated out of on on, Nep on um, Mimas? Mimas. Well, um I'll say first off, uh, due to the nature of my work was telepathic. Um, and so when you're in a, th this is a large space station. It's like the radius is about 250 miles. So it's, it's huge. Um, it has hundreds of thousands of entities in it of different types. Um, so what we would have, uh, and, and it, it resides primarily in a higher density, the eighth density. So different parts of the station um, have like, I, I'll, I call them Faraday cages is the closest thing I can come to them because you can, you can kind of control a density within that type of environment, like a, a metal room basically, um, and control the density. And so for most of the time I was actually in stasis. So a lot of what I did, um, I did through holographic work, which I recently remembered that. So I'm really grateful for that because um, things didn't make sense until, you know, I realized, oh my gosh, that was holographic work that I was doing. So, but a lot of times I was in a physical presence with a lot of these entities and meetings and boardrooms and things, but those were with entities um, that were of a similar vibration and density that we could kind of come together. You know, we would sometimes have to wear, um, I don't know what we call them, but they were just these belt type of things and, and a suit that allowed you to be in a, a, a higher density as a third density entity that I was. Um, but I couldn't do that for very long. And I couldn't stay at this eighth density location for too terribly long unless I was in a stasis pod. And uh, I think you know Jean-Charles Moyen and uh, and he and his wife, Melanie, that are they're both in... Uh, you know, security detail as well. Um, they actually both 
uh, recently told me that they remembered me being in stasis. They actually saw, physically saw me there. And that uh, that was kind of really interesting to know <laughs> somebody remembered that. But so most of the time I was in stasis. When I wasn't in stasis, it, uh, the, the station is very round. It's just a big, looks like the Death Star, really. Um, uh, that's the closest thing we can come to explaining what it is, just a big ball out in space. And within that um, space, or within that space station, uh, there are different uh, locations that for different types of entities. Like there's a large ocean space. Um, there's there's spaces that are very hot, spaces that are very cold, depending on the entity that um, the, the uh, delegation of that entity, you know, what they require for their atmospheric needs. Um, I, of course, stayed when I wasn't in stasis. I was in stasis over 80% of the time, um, you know, and that was A, because of the density, but also so that I couldn't be um, interfered with, you know, uh, on a telepathic level because I had information that, you know, didn't need to get out, you know, to other races necessarily. When you're just negotiating things, you know, there's just ways you do things. You know, and so it was would be inappropriate for me to be accessible to any higher advanced, you know, telepathic entity to come in and just take everything out of my mind that they want telepathically. So I was in stasis for those two reasons. Um, but when I wasn't in stasis, it was like a giant shopping mall, really. Um, it was like, you know, I don't know how many stories, you know, it was, they were all very, very large areas. You know, that you would think you were in a, really slick sci-fi type of movie um, that was all all kind of glass and chrome and and just white, like white marble looking. I don't know that it was marble. And then also trees and waterfalls, you know, because the atmosphere where I was, you know, most of the time was, of course, oxygen, hydrogen based, like we breathe, but it was very, very enriched. You know, it's like at times it was almost that you didn't have to breathe because your body was absorbing this atmosphere and it had enough oxygen in the blood system and so breathing was sort of secondary versus primary um but uh yeah it was just a just a beautiful environment there were people milling around you know um and when i wasn't just spending some time with with friends that i had there uh co-workers and friends uh, i would generally be in stasis so unfortunately there's not a lot of memories of, of living day to day on the station well, it's very interesting that you mentioned Jean-Charles Moyen and his uh, wife, Melanie, as actually seeing you in one of these stasis chambers, because right there you have kind of like independent corroboration or support for, for what you, you were saying, because I'm sure a lot of people are trying to wrap their minds around what, what you've been saying. But, but that's, yeah. and I know Jean-Charles, I mean, he has said that he had this deja vu experience when he saw you at the Galactic Spiritual Informers Conference. So do you remember that? I mean, what 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 happened? Just tell my audience, you know, yeah. what, what happened when you met Jean-Charles Moyen in, uh, in October in Orlando? Yeah, it was really interesting. Um, he kind of froze up a little bit. He was just, you know, there's like things connecting in his brain all of a sudden, you know, and it was, and, and, just within a few seconds, you know, we started to talk we, for the first couple of seconds. We just looked at each other. It's like, oh my gosh, I remember you. <laughs> it's you, it's you, you know? And it was just like, it was just this remarkable feeling of seeing 
a family member or a friend you haven't seen in in years and years and you have missed them you know and suddenly they're right standing they're standing right in front of you and it's just it's a joyous feeling it's absolutely joyous so did he say anything to you about um having met you when you weren't in the stasis chamber i mean i assume you know the fact that he and his wife who was also part of the secret space program the, the french the joint french us secret space program that they were standing over your stasis chamber for a reason obviously they would have known that you were a representative for the earth in this very sensitive kind of united nations diplomatic outpost there on on mimus so does cuz cuz he the kind of impression i got was that he he knew you from from interacting with you that he had met you as opposed to just seeing you in a stationary in a, in a stasis chamber yeah we were friends yeah we were friends and um it wasn't until after the conference uh that a lot of our memories came through which that's kind of how recovering memories works you have like a spark and then it takes a little while a little ember has to burn for a while and other then the memories float up to the consciousness and so in that process uh you know we had remembered that we were friends and, you know, and uh, we had been very close and we known each other for many years and um though we hadn't mentioned why they were in the the stasis chamber and why they would see me in there we haven't really discussed that my feeling is that they were probably just you know checking and you making sure everything was okay yeah and the timelines match too because i remember jean charles saying he began serving on this joint uh us french secret space program in the 1990s that, that he did a 20 and back with them um so that overlaps with with your time so clearly uh, that was possible that he and you met. And it makes sense that he, if he's serving on a joint French-US uh, space carrier, he called it the Solaris, that the Solaris would have had a lot to do with this United Nations space program headquarters there on MIMAS. Yeah, well, because the United Nations at that time didn't have any ships didn't have any transportation so they utilized what was available and the primary organization that that had set up intersolar interstellar really but within our solar system travel uh was uh was the navy um or the air force sorry um outside of our solar system was was more navy they they had better ships I see. You know, but yeah, but then the, later on, the United Nations actually, you know, did obtain some ships that they used for their their own, but they weren't as large or they weren't like battleships. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you know, within Mimas, you you described almost like this futuristic <laughs> kind of shopping mall type um, facility there, where there was lots of personnel. So, can you describe, you know, what was it? like in terms of personnel are we talking predominantly humans you know from different countries france china russia or are we talking about a mixture of humans nordics other types of extraterrestrials can you describe that absolutely uh, there were a lot of humans earth humans of all races um but the majority of uh, what was on the station uh, that i would see were non-human uh, a lot of humanoid forms uh some some entities that were very tall 
that looked exactly human. There were entities that looked like what we call Sasquatch. Um, there were entities that uh, looked like uh, insectoid. I'm just trying to think of their name, but I'm terrible with <laughs> names. Um, some of the ant type ant people, we call them as well, are there. Um, there were people that looked, um, uh, they're all blue. They look human for the most part, but were blue and had like translucent skin and shiny, beautiful white hair and um, several, there's a, quite a few races that were different shades of blue. Um, most of those were humanoid. There were entities that, that looked like, you know, lions and, and cats, and some of them looked sort of more canine as well. They were from different, uh, different planets, different races. Uh, there were, there's this one of my favorite races, um, uh, is a race that looked like, uh, like a macaque or a rhesus monkey. Uh, that just stood up and became human suddenly, but they have that look and they're highly intelligent and they love humanity and love human beings and they love human clothes. They wear human clothes a lot. They have this, they have a thing for that. Um, uh, so there was just an, an amazing array and, and a lot of entities that were, that were mostly light, you know, that were like maybe plasma, you know, but they could kind of take a form so that, you know, we could have something to look at kind of shape themselves and they, um, you know, like a light body type of thing. So it was just a huge array, huge array. Do you remember anything about the different kind of um, earth nations that were part of this uh, UN outpost there at, at Mimas? I mean, for example, uh, was, was it clear the difference between, say, someone from China as opposed to someone from Russia or someone from France? I mean, did they wear the similar uniforms just with a, a different patch, a national patch? I mean, well, what do you remember about the Earth humans that were there and, and their uniforms? Well, there's different variations of, of Earth humans that were there, meaning that some of them were military. Some of them were actual residents, you know, maybe families of, of representatives that were there. Um, but that we they never acted as a separate nation or race. We were always humans, earth humans. We were always earth humans, no matter what, which is like, it just brings joy to my heart knowing that's how it was. And that's how it'll eventually be here. <laughs> we just got to get there. But, uh, but we were never, because, you know, when you, you're leaving the planet and you're somewhere, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions, billions of miles away, and you're with your other fellow earthlings, you're from earth. You're not from a country. You know, and that was the camaraderie that we all had together. So there wasn't, you know, there was civilian clothes and, you know, you could necessarily always tell the difference from where they were from. But but we all we couldn't necessarily I don't recall all of us knowing the same language, but it didn't really matter. For the most part, you know, uh, we were all from Earth and we were all Earthlings. So, I mean, how how was the communication done between the Earthlings? And I, I assume that with the extraterrestrials, it was largely telepathic. But with with the Earthlings, I mean, it was was English the lingua franca? Or was there some translation device? Or how how was that done? Do you remember? You know, I don't remember a translation device, though. I I, I remember that there was something, but I don't know what that was. Um, <clears throat> For myself, uh, when they unlocked all of my previous memories, I had a number of languages that I could speak, um, you know, and that, of course, was when I was returned and, you know, after 60 years back as a two-year-old, 
then those memories were were taken back out. You know, it wasn't appropriate for me to be born with them. Um, so I think a lot of the people that were there, they were there because they had the ability to be multilingual. You know, so communicating, I don't ever rem remember it being a problem, you know, um, but I don't remember a specific, like a device that caused us to understand one another. Yeah. Now, uh, this, this United Nations outpost on Mimus included the major spacefaring nations or those with uh, space programs at the time. We could, you know, kind of list them off China, France, India, Britain, mm -hmm. US, and so forth. But what about the the German program or the Dark Fleet or Nachtwaffen? Was, was that represented there on Mimus? Mimus? Well, you know, it was a really difficult uh, problem uh, that they 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 were were races or sorry, there were factions of hum the human race um, that were off doing their own thing, um, and certainly um, some of those. Um, you know, that you mentioned were actually mostly off planet on either asteroids or another planet uh, that was occupied by humans. Um, but they generally had an interest, you know, in being there from time to time, but they were short time visitors uh, because they really didn't want anything to do with us as far as other Earth humans. They felt like they'd left us and they left us behind. Um, the unfortunate thing was that how you're seen as a galactic race, as an up and coming race, as we humans currently are, you're seeing that if, if, if you fracture, fracture off and you leave the, your planet, you're still seen as Earth humans for quite a long period of time. So whatever these negative dark fleets would go off and do, it still came back to the United Nations. You know, we're still responsible for their actions. So we had to meet with them um, to try to work out a deal so we can go back to, you know, uh, you know, the delegation on Mimas and actually make apologies a lot of times, you know, and renegotiate things because of some of the stuff these other human factions were doing. But like I said, the um, reason we have to all get along here on Earth and the reason most of the, you know, galactic races haven't just come and landed on Earth for the most part um, is because we're not getting along with ourselves and that we don't understand and realize that we are held responsible for all the other humans. Every single one of us is responsible for every other one of us. And, and that's just how it's looked at. That's just how it's done. You know, so uh, so that, yes, there were some of the dark fleet that would come from time to time, but begrudgingly so, and they wouldn't stay long. Mm -hmm. So almost like uh, uh, a family where you have the parents being held to account for an unruly child that goes out there and creates havoc in the neighborhood. And you, you, you have to knock on the neighbor's door, say, sorry, my, what my son did, you know, to your lawn and, you know, oh, yeah. what he did to your fans <laughs> and sorry about that. And so it sounds like that's pretty much what you were doing a lot of the time. <laughs> It was a lot, yeah, <laughs> a lot of the time because I, um, because it was known that what race I was, you know, uh, what my native race was, and it was known by a lot of the other delegations. A lot of the other races knew who I was natively. They they could tell. They're telepathic. They could see it instantly, and so my race was a very trusted race. So that's why I would do a lot of the negotiating and go in and have conversations um, with these other races. Now, I was never in charge of those 
small meetings we had, I was usually just there as the anchor point, you know, because my race was trusted. Um, but also because I had, I, was, I don't have it so much now because, you know, you return to earth and you forget all these things, but a very strong telepathic ability that I could communicate during meetings with other entities. And so I would just report in and say, listen, things aren't going well, or things are going great, you know, keep going, keep doing what you're doing. But there, I was not the one in charge. I was always with at least two other people that were, you know, outranked me essentially. Mm-hmm. So now it's worth kind of emphasizing here that you know, at that point, you've only kind of lived two years on earth as a baby, even though now you're in your your second 20 and back program. Of course, you spent 20 years in the military space program. So are you regarded as kind of like a fellow extraterrestrial or as a human? Because um, you were brought in because of your extraterrestrial heritage and i think you mentioned andromedans at some point so so did the extraterrestrials see you like as an andromedan or did they see you as a human with with andromedan kind of characteristics i mean how did they perceive you well um i firstly uh i don't 100 percent know you know or actually i do but i'm not really allowed to say what my native race is um, it does kind of go through a number of races. I have definitely incarnated through Andromeda. Um, but when you're when you're seeing it, it depends on the individual and the awareness of the individual. So in my case, um, when I would come into contact with another, what, the vast majority of them were much more advanced telepathically and much more advanced technologically. So easy read, you know, really easy to read uh, as a human physical form. Um, so they would see me. And they would be able to know what I was already aware of. For the most part, I was aware of everything, who I was, what my native race was, the reason I was there. So they could communicate with me on that level. But many of the other people I was with, they were human, like my security detail I had that traveled with me and such as that, their awareness was more limited because it had to be, it needed to be. And so they would go at that level whatever it's so it was about the individual and whatever the individual was aware of internally okay in our last interview you you talked about a meeting that you were in where like in your in the first year of you being in the united nations secret space programs on mimus that Mm -hmm. you were shot and killed by an extraterrestrial that was very angry over what the Nakwafen had done on their planet, killing hundreds of thousands, and you were killed, and and uh, you know, I guess your your body or so your body was killed, but your consciousness or soul extract was transferred into a clone. Yes. So that was one incident you described. So I just wanted to kind of get you to. Yeah, um, if you want to elaborate on that, and then describe were there other incidents you remember from that. 20 that first 20 year period in the united nations secret space program yeah it's really interesting um that i I tend to remember things that are like really impactful you know and being shot and killed would be one so that is a very defined memory you know and just for the sake of uh, viewers that haven't heard uh, what this was about very quickly um there was these dark fleets that went to a planet um, and were trying to talk them out of some of their resources. I believe it was some type of quartz uh, they wanted. Um, and the race wouldn't turn it over for free. They were like, no, we needed to, you know, trade. Um, so basically 
they just attacked the the dark fleet attacked killed about 300,000 of these individuals and took what they wanted anyway well of course this these this race was very angry you know this race uh they they they're not quite like say a vulcan you know in star trek that you know have suppressed their emotions entirely though for the most part they have um and but they don't like to show emotion they choose not to show emotion but they feel it um and this obviously was a highly emotional situation we were sitting in a in a a boardroom there was myself and my two superiors to my left at sort of like a small boardroom i guess the room would be about 20 foot you know each direction and then there was three of these this other race um very tall uh they had tall gray skin but they had like a triangular type of head and um they were doing their best to control their emotion uh, but it wasn't working very well because of the three fact that 300,000 of them were killed. Um, and they were there because we were desperately trying to, you know, tell them, you know, we'll find a way to make it right, you know, because they were headed to earth. They were pissed off. <laughs> um, and they were, we, we didn't know exactly what they were going to do, but it wasn't going to be good for earth. Um, so we had, we stepped in there and they were negotiating with my two superiors but i could tell the, the main uh guy in charge of the of these other entities wasn't was feeling that he was not being heard and so i i told you know my superiors to listen it's you know you're not getting through you know you're you're cold and he's feeling like you're not understanding the gravity of the situation so you know in that sort of moment um of not feeling like he's being heard and understood he got very angry it just it snapped and so he just ran his hand across his chest like this and then this beam of say you know the center of his chest kind of like a green beam came out and so he was only about six feet from me across the table and it this beam hit me about this area and it just like fried me i mean i was gone you know i, I didn't die right away but I, obviously i fell back you know and you know they had to very quickly because you know they had uh clones of you know certain people uh that for these type of emergencies you know so there's one available on the space station so they got me to medical right away um they were able to transfer my consciousness and memories um capture it and and transfer it to the clone before it dissipated because i did die in the room actually so that's what happened <laughs> You know, so I had a brand new 25 year old body again, so that wasn't bad. <laughs> uh, but also the good thing is that that entity, he became my friend um, and he has actually visited me here on Earth um, one time um, and just checking in to see how things were going. Uh, but he instantly he really meant to kind of like share that beam across and kill all three of us. But the second he hit me, he he felt regret. And so he he shut that beam off, and um, and because of that, and after that moment, I heard later that um, they were able to come to an agreement, you know, because they realized that they had lost it, and they they you know wanted to make that right. So they were able to come to an agreement. Oh, I can't I can't hear you, Michael. Uh, dip diplomats certainly earn their pay. Um, 
I did that day. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so yeah. that was so that was one incident in that period. For, were there any other incidents in that kind of first twenty years within this the United Nations Secret Space Program? You remember? You know, there are a couple that I'm I'm currently working on trying to you know make sense of the memories because they don't all come in like linearly. They kind of come in as a puzzle taken apart and I'm still putting them together. So I don't think it'd be appropriate really to share yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will certainly, uh, when I get that puzzle put back together, um, that's just the most impactful one. And the one I remember the most that I, I could stand on say, this is the absolute truth. And this is what happened. Okay. All the other things are flashes. All right. So, so that, that happened around 1991. So in, in 2000, uh, 1991, so 2000 and and 10, I guess, your 20-year and back with the United Nations is over and you decide to re-enlist hmm. to serve again. Mm-hmm. And you're, I guess, well, are you given a new clone body or are you age-regressed? What, 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 what happened? Well, uh, during that negotiation, uh, I was kind of adamant, you know, there's certain things, you know, if I'm going to join for 20 more years. And it's interesting that I I had to, it was still through the uh um the earth base, obviously, but the United States, because I was a United States citizen and I was brought in through the United States. So I had to do all my negotiating through them and they had to agree first for everything. So I was I negotiated, you know, my terms, you know, like a payout and such as that when I, you know, retire. Um, uh, so I, at, at that negotiation, at that negotiation, one of my points that I negotiated was, cause I'm, again, I'm 45 ish. I'm like, I want my 25 year old body again, you know? So as part of my negotiation, I was moved into a 25 year old clone again, and I, I served my last 20 years, but at the end of the full 60 years, then what they would do or what they did with me. Um, was they had a clone of my two-year-old body. And then they moved, they removed most of my memory, the vast majority of it. Um, and then my consciousness, they just moved into that two-year-old body. So basically I was a two-year-old um, again with no memory of anything. And so they returned me back um, in, to 1970. Mm-hmm. So, so that's very interesting that, I mean, you return back to 1970. You you live a normal life, but that, but that Chris O'Connor, that's part of the United Nations Secret Space Program that began the third 20 and back in 2010 is is still serving right now. Yes, and he has a different a, name, but yes, <laughs> different name. Okay, yeah, all yeah. right. So you're still serving, and um, and I think the last time we talked, you didn't have any memories of that third secret space program term of service but you did a, an interview with elena danan uh, a month or two ago where you actually started to get some memories and and this concerned um the anunnaki and uh, enki so you want to tell us like what what did you remember yeah that's fascinating um uh one of my uh and when I mentioned about memories coming in as puzzle pieces, and you have to put them together to to create a story and make sense of your memory, um, was I had always remembered being on uh, the balcony of like what I thought was a mall at the time, with four 
maybe five, but four or five uh, security that were in gray suits. And um, we were having a discussion on this mezzanine next to a large doorway that was to my right. And um, we were discussing how sad it was that uh, we would we were not able to go back home and share these stories with our family and those that we loved and, and how sad it was that that humans don't know the truth of what's happening, you know, and that there would be no wars on earth if people knew what was really going on out there and how wonderful it really was. And we were just talking about this and there was, you know, entities and people milling around entering or kind of coming out of this large room. It was like a, a conference hall type of uh, room. And so we're standing there and, um, and I said, well, you know, I'm going to remember this moment. I said, I'm going to remember. And a man, one of the security next to me says, no, no, you're not. I'm like, oh, I absolutely am going to remember. And then just at that moment, there were um, these blue alien entities coming out of that doorway and they were like arms length away. And we, and I heard him psychically or telepathically say something to me, catch my attention, say my name probably. So I turned my head and I looked. And as soon as I said, oh, I'm going to remember, I looked at him and he said, and I know you will too. You know, and part of the memories that I began to receive and, and, and put together was that that was only a moment in a much larger memory that I now have been able to kind of put those pieces together. Because it turns out that as an emissary, you know, I, I don't like to say ambassador because I don't remember me having that title. Though that was the work I was doing, I don't recall the title, so I don't claim it. Um, but I was there to have a, you know, uh, to speak, actually. And so I'm speaking. And, and so that memory was kind of the end of that moment. But prior to that, I was actually in the conference room. Um, and that there was a big meeting about something. And I didn't remember, I don't remember what exactly it was about, but I remember it was big. And it was about Earth having to come in and become a larger part of the Confederation and the Federation, and that um, there were some entities and there was a program um, that was set up. Um, and I knew it was very, very old. And that for some reason, because you mentioned the DNA and being able to work certain you know, machinery and certain technology based on your DNA, I was the only one available to be there to actually punch in the code to dis disarm this program. And part of that program in speaking with Elena and, and going over this for the last couple of few months was uh, because I recall being with entities that we describe now as the Anunnaki. I remember standing in front of them having conversations and it was all part of this, this memory. So in that memory, because I had something to do as a prior to incarnation, my race had something to do with setting this program up. But since it was going to humans, it had to go through that one of those entities that have been incarnated through the human race, because it has, it's about breaking and abridging free will. As long as a human is doing it for the human race, then it's not considered breaking free will. And so um, it turns out that that was, uh, the canceling of basically ownership of Saturn and uh, some other locations within our solar system. And that that was being turned over by uh, 
Inky, who we now refer to as Ia, um, because he was technically the owner of, of a lot of territory here in the Anunnaki as a whole. Um, now that that is, that's, I've been able to put that whole memory together now. And that was the event. The event was turning over um, that, those properties to human earth, earth humans rather. Now, we know that Elena uh, Danan talked about that that meeting and, and witnessing witnessing that or being told about that meeting with uh, Prince Ea handing over the authority for Saturn over to um, the earth and, and also heard, and, and I, I recall uh, Alex Collier also kind of like relaying information he, he got from the Andromedans that... Uh, there was a trial being set up for uh, Enki's brother, Enlil, who was the big troublemaker. Now, um, are, are we talking about the same set of events or are these separate events? I mean, Enki handing over authority or Prince Ea handing over authority of Saturn to the Earth Alliance and Space Command or uh, and, and, and also this trial of Enlil. Um, that was that were they separate incidents or were they the same thing? They were separate incidences that I, as far as I can recall, because the actual uh event that I was at on Mimas was because it was whole they were handing over Saturn. And as I recall, um, all the other the trial type of stuff didn't happen on that station. I believe it was Jupiter, but I, I'm not 100% sure on that. Okay, okay. But of course, uh, you know that's something that um, Elena described, and and she also has described these meetings involving delegates holographically coming in to to meet and have a dialogue, kind of like in the Star Wars. I think uh, episode the, the the first episodes or episode one and two where they had these you know the Jedi Knights meeting, and you'd have some physically there, but many of them holographically came in so was that pretty much the way the meeting that you attended uh played out well um in my memory uh and and what i'm feeling is that mostly it was they were physically there uh, but also when you're dealing with just memory uh it's since i'm so visual my memories are based on those and uh and so a lot of those holograms some of those uh, different races, you wouldn't know the difference between them being their solid and a hologram. Now, a lot of what we were using and a lot of other races, you could tell because I'm, a, I remember being um, in meetings where I could look at my hand and it was sort of like fade out, like the middle of my finger down begin to slightly fade out, you know, and I never could make sense of that memory. You know, why, you know, why is my hand not entirely solid? Well, now that makes sense to me that I've begun to recall that a lot of my work was holographic. And so um, our technology wasn't as good as some of the other. And so my memories being that everyone at least looked solid. I think there were probably a couple scattered that I could maybe tell might have been holographic. So this was a very significant event. I, I know David Icke, he has talked about the Saturn moon Earth matrix, so that that Saturn and the Moon are somehow critical components of this control grid or the matrix uh, controlling all life on planet Earth. So, handing over control of Saturn 
seems to be or Mimas and Saturn handing that over to the Earth Alliance essentially would mean that humanity would be free of this control system. So yeah. is that pretty much what you recall, the significance of this handover of authority that somehow the Earth would now be free? Yes, exactly. Because the feeling of it um, is that uh, because the humans are moving into fourth density, a higher understanding, and and and, we're, and all the disclosures are going to be coming in the next couple of years, it's really going to be intensified. Um, we kind of had to have that ability to create disclosure and not allow it to be blocked and controlled by nefarious forces. Um, but just as a side note, um, the Mimas was never a part of Saturn as far as ownership. From about Mimas outward from the orbit of Saturn was not owned by the Anunnaki. Um, the, it was just the planet and the rings for the most part um, at this time, at least, you know, so there was no handing over of, of Mimas because that was truly a confederation of, of many, many different races and planets and solar systems. So what do you recall of the Anunnaki themselves and of, of Ia that, that you saw at, at Mimas? Uh, the only memory I really have is having a discussion um, with uh, some of these entities that, you know, I, I can't say 100% with the, that they were Anunnaki because of the whole name memory thing is very blocked for me. Um, but visually, they look exactly like, you know, um, I've described them to to Elena and some others that know what they look like. And they're like, yeah, that's exactly what they look like. So. I remember specifically having conversations with them. I don't remember what the context was. We were just standing out in a mezzanine area. And um, this one entity that I, I believe now is Ia, or was Ia, um, is wearing this robe that uh, was very interesting. And he's about seven, eight feet tall, I'm guessing. Um, but this robe was like a shimmering, it's more like light. It didn't really look physical. Um, and I just remember noticing that it was just like a silver fabric that was that would kind of wave and move. And it was very iridescent. So it had all the colors, you know, as it moved, it would shimmer different colors. And that that's what I remembered, you know, but then around him were, I think, three or four other entities that were of the same race that had on a black and green suits. Um, and they were kind of backing him up. And so I was just having a conversation with, I believe, was he, I just. 100% can't say. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so, I mean, this this happened only recently. I mean, we're talking kind of like a year ago that this meeting or this handover occurred. And, and of course, you're here living, living a, a conventional timeline, but a, a part of you, your soul extract or consciousness, is living as part of this international space program with another name having these experiences and now you're starting to remember that so i mean how, how does that happen i mean is the memory something that is being recollected linearly you know in terms of or is it happening directly some kind of direct connection between you physically here and that version of you that's serving right now you know, it's interesting. Um, 
Well, that's all true, actually. Uh, there is no, I found in my experience that there's no real rule to memory recovery. Um, the, the primary rule that I follow is, is meditation to, you know, kind of open my subconscious mind to my conscious mind. And so that some of those memories can come through. Um, but it's also, I, I, it, it sounds really strange, but it's absolutely true that, um, my other aspect of myself, um, has come and visited me and has had some communication with me. And we've met a couple of times, um, and which is very strange, you know, um, to, to have a conversation with yourself that you're physically standing there looking at yourself. It's very, very odd. Um, but, um, for the most part, there's a separation and that's only been recently because of uh, other events coming in, you know, and, and me increasing my memories and, and raising my vibration uh, to a level that that can be possible, you know? And so it, it's a journey and, and there's, like I said, there's no real rule, you know, to recovering and putting memories together and they don't come in linearly. They come in as needed. And then you kind of, kind of have to put them together and make sense of the whole, you know, whole memory once you get enough of the pieces together. And then once you kind of like begin to connect the dots, then it, uh, then it's like a framework where more memory can come in, you know, then they can establish in your mind. And, and that's, that's how I see it working with me. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting that um, just recently on, on January 7, uh, Elena says that uh, she saw through the eyes of Thorhan that he was at a, at, a, at a Blue Ridge Mountain facility where there was a, a, a four-star general who was there and Thorhan handed over a device which was containing a disclosure plan. And, and that disclosure plan presumably involves the galactics kind of putting together a sequence of events that would result in humanity being told the truth about what's happening out there. Now, it sounds like what is happening to you could be part of that plan because now, I mean, you're you're meeting your that aspect of you, which is part of the... International Secret Space Program, you're starting to remember more. You've had meetings with him. And right now we're having um, a disclosure plan kind of like starting to unfold with UFOs being suddenly talked about ad nauseum in the mainstream media. You know, at the moment it's a threat, but it soon can easily morph into something else. So, um, yeah, I mean, what... Do you feel, uh, how do you feel about that? I mean, is, is there a bigger disclosure plan happening and that you're part of this? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's the whole point of, of many of us, you know, and I, when I say many, I mean, we're talking millions and millions of different, you know, what we call star seeds coming in. It's And once this process of evolution of the human race has been completed, many of us will go to another planet where they're third density going into fourth and they're, you know, it's just the process because what it is, once your race has moved on past like the fourth density or so into the fifth, especially, then you've come together enough that you can go and assist other races in their ascension. And so that's just the process. It's very normal. Um, and there's always a plan. Um, and earth, earth is a little bit, you know, special and unusual. 
because there's been so much uh, negative interference for so very long. Um, and there uh, a lot of things have been put in place to suppress memory and to keep control of overpopulation and that type of thing. And so because of those issues, the plan has to be more crafted, you know, and more carefully placed. But it's important that even if you're uh, coming in as another race, that you have to incarnate through that whatever race, in this case, is human. You have to incarnate through the humans to have the human experience to maintain the free will ab uh, abrogation uh, so that you don't land a giant spacecraft, you know, into a society that can't handle it, you know, that'll start shooting at you or that will start shooting at one another, you know, because out of fear, you know, and, and right now we're not hundred percent out of that, you know? Um, so like you say, there will be a, like a layout, the plan for earth and for humans is for it to become more common to see UFOs so that it will be no big deal. You know, it might be cool to watch, but you're like, okay, yeah, I see UFO. I get it now. You know, then the next step will be with them communicating with people more directly and then, you know, eventually someday landing on, on the earth. And it really depends on humans. It truly depends on humans and how, how we approach the situation. If we can come together as a human race and say, okay, you know, let's accept this. This is the fact. Let's not freak out. You know, let's not start shooting at things and start going crazy. If we can get to that point, they'll land as soon as we're there. But we're just not there yet. I've heard uh, similar things uh, from uh, JP, my army source, who, who very recently was taken into an underground facility in Florida and saw a spaceport with all of these Nordic craft that he has seen before. Actually, he took a photo of one of the craft um, back in 2018 uh, with, with two Nordics in it. And I actually did publish it on my website. So that photo is available. Uh, but he saw that he saw uh, hundreds of these craft in this underground base. And he said, they are now uh, working with the underground civilizations and they are going to start revealing themselves just as you said. So that, so that does seem to be a, a disclosure plan where methodically and gradually all humanity is going to be introduced more and more to these uh, strange craft that are flying that no one can ex explain satisfactorily. And then at some point, the light's going to turn on and it's going to be like, well, they're actually um, extraterrestrial. But I, but I believe that they'll probably first reveal the secret space program first to just get people's yeah. confidence up that, oh, you know, uh, you know, the Earth's nations have their own anti-gravity craft. You know, we can kick butt out there and and yeah. then eventually it'll be like, oh, oh, by the way, extraterrestrials are here as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they've been here all along, you know, and it's 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 so exciting to me because people have no idea. I mean, I know there's there's a lot of horror stories, you know, because that that's just part of life. It's got to be a balance. But the beauty of what's out there, you know, the, ex the, the excitement I know that people will experience and the joy and the wonders that, that, that are available if we're just ready for it, you know, and uh, I, I can't wait. I can, you know, I remember a lot of it. So it's not going to be such a shock for me, obviously, but mm -hmm. I, I just, you know, people are afraid. Uh, 
to let go of old concepts, especially religious concepts that say, if you don't believe this, you're going to go to hell or you're never going to, you know, you know, you know, be accepted, uh, you know, into a heaven state, which those are all lies, you know, to keep you from opening your mind to accepting, you know, extraterrestrials to accepting the truth of what's really out there, you know, and those are the, those are the reasons, you know, um, because religion has been a very, very powerful control over humanity for a very long time. And to the point that people have killed over it and they, and, and it's just, it's been happening for a long, long time here on earth, you know, and once we can get past the mindset of you not wanting to kill somebody else over the fact they don't believe like you, then we're opening ourselves to being ready to accept the truth. I think it's very important to, to mention that there is independent confirmation for the things that you've been describing, the things that Elena has been describing, that, and the things that JP has been telling me. Uh, recently, a very prominent uh, founder of a Washington, D.C. think tank called the Arlington Institute, uh, John Peterson, and I talked about this in my recent webinar, webinar, what's coming in 2023, for those that want to go in, into this more deeply to find out what he said. But but he was told by three independent sources, and, and the important thing is that the Arlington Institute is in no way associated with UFO, uh, the UFO movement. Um, it's an independent think tank funded by the US Navy to come up with future scenarios for advanced technologies being kind of disseminated on the earth and how the, the US Navy would respond to all of that. But he was he was said uh, in an interview he just did with recently with Greg Braden, he said that three independent credible sources had told him very similar things to what you and Elena and JP have been saying, that, that negative extraterrestrials have had to leave, positive extraterrestrials have taken over our solar system and are working with uh, Earth governments, the Earth Alliance, to promote disclosure and that this is this is going to be happening very soon. So you know, there's some people that are listening to all of this, maybe think, well, you know, this is hopium or this is kind of like just uh, wishful thinking. But in fact, there's independent corroboration from a very credible Washington area think tank funded by the Navy, confirming a lot of what you've said. Well, that's amazing. I wasn't aware of that. Um, but, uh, you know, and even if even if there is a dash of hopium in there, we need it. You know, we need hope and we, we need to see a future that is that is real and that is positive and and that is loving and we don't have that to focus on we can't manifest it well there's the you know the old adage uh, where your attention goes reality flows oh, yeah. so you 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 put your attention on positive outcomes that's the reality you're going to create and um and so I'm I'm very glad to be working with you Elena Jean-Charles uh, JP and others that uh, do have a positive vision, that don't get us to dwell on the gloom and doom scenarios, that we focus on the positive, because the more we focus on the positive, put our attention on that, then then we are actually participating in the reality, in the creation of this incredible new reality. And I, and I think you're doing really wonderful in in putting out that message with you know what you do, and of course you, your your Deems device. So maybe. As we kind of bring this to a close, you want to just give people uh, an update on the things that you're doing, the Deems device and anything else that you're doing now that can help people prepare for what's coming? Well, 
Well, as far as the the, the Deems uh, device, you know that um, we're, I'm still building them. I, we're on a hiatus right now. I had a, a foot injury. I'm recovering from, so I can't build at the moment. But um, so th- those are still in available, and we're in many many more countries. And I'm just really really grateful for that. You know, because that was a piece of technology I brought back. Um, and it was part of my negotiation for my final 20 years was I wanted to bring that uh, technology back. It was called something else. I call it the Deems device um, because I know humanity needed it. Humans need to understand that we are creating, like you just said, we are creating our reality. Thought is love and love and thought are what create our current reality. And so uh, this device, the Deems device, all it, all it really does is have a, a electromagnetic, a magnetic field um, and a piezoelectric uh, energy field that it creates. And um, it's a passive type of technology that just gives your body the ample energy that it needs to do what it needs to do, whether it's work um, on your energy body, your physical body for pain relief or healing, uh, because piezoelectric energy is what our brain our pineal gland and our nervous system use. So um, that's the type of uh, understandings that we as human needs, humans need to understand is that all the answers are internal. You know, all the healing is internal. I mean, it's, it's we do it ourselves, our physical body. And so bringing these, because uh, all technology, all high, the highest technology out there in some form or fashion is magnets and crystals. So, I'm working on doing research and helping to bring some of the magnetic um, and crystalline uh, technology here to Earth. The Deems is the first of those devices, and I am working on others um, to, you know, to do some things. I probably shouldn't say what they're <laughs> quite at this point in time. Uh, I will reveal some, you know, some stuff in uh, in October in the uh, the, the GISIC conference. Um, so. It, it's a it's a work in progress, you know, and I'm we're doing experiments and trying different crystals and different things to see really what works. And I didn't used to believe in crystal and technology. I really didn't. You know, I did a lot of research for for museums around the world. And so I had a very technical thinking type of research mind. Um, but when I began to understand and research, you know, the crystalline structure and the nature of crystals in how energy flows through them, then I began to understand how it is that we are manifesting, you know, our own reality. And so that's the main lesson uh, and the main purpose for for the Deems company is to help people learn to do things for themselves. So, so, so where do people go to find out more about uh, the Deems and what you're doing? And if they want to get in touch with you, where, where do they go? Well, if you want to get in touch, uh, our email is uh, deemsdevice at gmail.com. That's D-E-E-M-S device, D-E-V-I-C-E at gmail.com. Or you can go to deemscompany.com and we have our website there. Well, I want to thank you, Chris, for coming on XR Politics today and, and, and sharing some of your experiences and knowledge about what's what's happened and uh what's happening up there in uh secret space program so thank you and aloha oh thank you aloha uh, you know michael for allowing me to be here and thank you everyone for watching i, I, I truly am appreciative of that so thank you you have been listening to exopolitics today with dr michael sala 
Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com.